Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. I'm here with Stacy Mitchell, who's the co-director of ILSR, as well as Zephyr Teachout, who has a brand new book called Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Egg, Big Tech, and Big Money, which is exactly what it sounds like, building an anti-monopoly movement. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. This is... Uh... Talking with Stacy is basically my favorite way to spend time anyway, so to do it on this podcast is even more exciting. Oh, that's so nice. Stacy, do you want to get us started with questions? Yeah, actually I do. You have been on the front lines of the anti-monopoly movement over the last few years. I mean, sort of early pioneer of trying to grow attention on this issue. And I'm, I'm curious about your assessment of where we are, and it's sort of a question about why did you write this book now, but also just sort of bigger picture, like where are we, where do we find ourselves in what's happening, and in, in, are you encouraged, discouraged, some of both? Hugely discouraged and hugely encouraged. So, <laughs> I mean, that, it, I, I laugh, but it's, we're in a really, really dangerous moment right now. And what is discouraging first, and then there's a lot that's really encouraging. What is discouraging is that the crisis of concentration of power, which has been growing for, for decades, has just been really exaggerated by this pandemic. And we are facing... Uh, catastrophic collapse in small businesses, local power across the country. And if you're listening, think about your own community, think about the devastation of restaurants, small pharmacies, small bookstores, small manufacturers across the country. And the impact that has on those business owners, the impact it has on those workers, the impact that has on those communities, and then the subsidiary impact on the power to fight power because these small business owners have been on the front lines of yelling in the wind and increasingly not in the wind being heard to say, we have a real problem here. So I'm, I'm very, very concerned. The devastation in communities of color is especially extreme you've probably read the headlines and seen the news about disparate impact of COVID in communities of color. The business impact has been just horrific. Some people think that as many as a half of black small businesses might collapse due to this pandemic. And our response has been grotesquely insufficient. A Band-Aid for a few months in the CARES Act not a serious response. So that's the bad news. And the bad news is quite bad. In terms of the movement, however, I see the modern anti-monopoly movement, a movement for relocating power more locally and relocating power in people and not big corporations as really starting after the crash of 2008, when people across the country just saw this totally inadequate response to the devastating crash on the part of our mainline institutions. And in the last four or five years, groups like ILSR, which this is not an ad for ILSR, but I so deeply admire and love, (laughs) 
have gotten much more attention for describing the world in a way that, you know, people are looking around for saying, what's going on? And groups like ILSR have gotten more attention. There are many more people who are organizing around this. New groups like Athena, the powerful coalition to take on Amazon, joining workers and small business owners to take on this Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan-like uh, business. <laughs> um, uh, incredible new energy in Congress, not just with David Cicilline's great antitrust subcommittee, but I just had a wonderful event with Rokana yesterday, who is very interested in concentration issues. I had an event with Congressman Chuy Garcia a few weeks ago, who's very interested in these issues. There's just growing interest in, in Congress, and it often takes a long time to, to get there. On the one hand, it's moving. The Uber-Lyft fight in California has been really powerful in bringing together people to fight against some of the platform monopolists. So there's this incredible possible path of reclaiming our freedom and reclaiming a more equal, just, thriving, even beautiful moral economy. And we're in terrible shape. It's not just that we have to act fast. The thing I most believe is that we do have to make anti-monopoly part of all of our politics. The, the task right now that I'm proud to be a part of, and you guys have been central, is, is in shifting anti-monopoly fights from between economists to making it central to public debate in all areas. When we're talking about ag policy, when we're talking about finance policy, when we're talking about pharma, making anti-monopoly part of everything we do and looking at things through the lens of power in everything we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book is terrific. And one thing I loved about it is it's a really like fast read. It's just engaging. And there's there's sort of, you cover a lot of ground, but it just feels very conversational in a way. That's terrific. There's this central point that you make that monopoly power, corporate power, we should understand as political power. And that seems very transformational, I think. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how it plays out? Yeah, this is, I think this is really important. And just for my own background, I come from, I teach law Fordham and I have both taught and been an activist in money and politics and democracy reform, voting rights reform for, for decades. And I came to anti-monopoly work around the time of Citizens United because it became clear that as central as campaign finance reform is, and I still think it's absolutely central, we have a real democratic problem with concentrated power. And it's a pretty frontal assault on self-government. I come at anti-monopoly as a democracy activist. What There's two main ways in which these big corporate entities, these big institutions are threatening government. One is by corrupting government through campaign finance, funding think tanks, funding some of the fanciest universities in the country. Recent evidence showing that a key economist who runs Yale's Antitrust Institute is does consulting for Amazon, as well as Google heavily funding George Mason. So there's the tentacles everywhere. I think people understand that. The more insidious form of these big corporations taking over democracies, they are governing themselves. They're directly governing us. They are regulating, taxing, directing us, controlling how we live. And Stacey, you've written wonderfully about this in terms of Amazon and other big companies. 
But I think that sometimes there's a tendency to be weirdly formal when it comes to what is government, to say it's government if they're called the mayor. And in every other part of life, we say, well, if it looks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And right. when it comes to these big companies, well, when Amazon basically changes its rules about, it changes its algorithm, but let's call it rules about prioritizing certain products that use certain different ingredients, that's a regulatory move. It's basically saying, this is the ingredient of choice and we're banning that kind of ingredient. When Tyson changes the rules about what kind of feed hormone is gonna be used, that's regulatory because the impact on the different growers is as if a regulator had spoken. And the one I think that people really get right now is the way in which we have come to accept Mark Zuckerberg as our privacy regulator. Yeah. So it's like, okay, they are, our privacy czar has decided that our new privacy rules this month are X or Y, and so and accepted it that this is that we should be petitioning Zuckerberg to change his privacy rules that we all live under. And by the way, this is not a new form of government. This is a pretty toxic oligarchic model where people in government use their power at the top of a government to extract value from the people who they govern. It's extractive, it's toxic, it's, it's bad, and we shouldn't allow it. I have what is kind of a simple question, but one that I think about a lot, just the terminology. So people see these problems in their life and there's this growing awareness that like, something is wrong, you know? Like I can see that these things are happening in my life and affecting me in the day to day. And I think it's these big guys, you know, influencing politics and influencing society. But are people actually, is the average American calling that monopoly power? Or is that still, like, is the connection not quite there? No and yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> just because we say it all the yeah. time and you know like if people are listening to this their, this podcast they're like yeah monopoly power like i, I kind of understand that structure and what that term means but i don't have a good idea if if people are if that is out there quite yet well, there's reasons to think it's not and there's reasons to think it is <laughs> so the reasons to think that it's out there much more than we think is both anecdotally i run for office when I first ran for office, it was for governor of New York with my running mate, Tim Wu, who has been a real leader in this area. And we held anti-monopoly, I wouldn't call them rallies, but at the time nobody knew we existed. There were, <laughs> but we held anti-monopoly events at big cable companies where people dropped off their bill <laughs> to talk about why these monopolies were awful. And people totally got it. And they naturally slipped into like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt, trust busting. And there's a language they could call on from high school, maybe, from some sense of Roosevelt. Like, I know this is wrong. And when you said the word monopoly, they didn't say, oh, no, what are you talking about? And there's that. And then there's also recent polling, which shows that corporate monopolies are more hated than Wall Street, which takes a lot of hating. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just did some recent polling with Data for Progress showing that when asked pretty specific questions about, do you think we should break up big ag, big tech, and big pharma, a majority of Americans left and right say, yeah. A big chunk, like a quarter, say, I don't know. Huh? <laughs> and then another 20% say no. Well, 20% saying no is actually pretty small. I read, I read in that polling and in my own experience that 
people are hunting for language to describe this awful thing that is happening to them. And they are feeling governed and they are feeling debilitated by anger at, at not having control over their own lives, whether you're working for a big company or running a small business, but feel totally out of control, feel subject to arbitrary power. And that's one of the things that I think is so toxic about this model is that people can get just shut off for no reason and in a disconnected, non-responsive way. But I, I think when people then start digging into monopoly, and I really want to hear how you guys think about this, there is this like puzzle at the, at the core of it is the word monopoly includes mono, one. And there's a lot of self-doubt where people say, well, I know it's not just one distributor. I know it's not just one big tech company. It's like two or three. And so they feel insecurity around it. And that is then there's been an aggressive 40-year campaign trying to teach people to feel insecure. Tell them, you don't know what monopoly means. This is just a world for economists. Monopoly means something specific. It's not what it's not what you feel. And I have struggled with the word monopoly for that reason. It has a very rich American tradition, which I love. I also like the word trust busting because the, mm-hmm. the trust at least isn't about just one. It's it's this idea of there's a network of power that, that is controlling you and we should stop it. So what, I mean, what do you guys see in your, in your conversations? Because I see both a real attraction and a lot of insecurity. I like the word monopoly a lot. And I think it's a lot, you know, we say anti-monopoly a lot because it's bigger and better than antitrust, (laughs) which I think a lot of people are very much uncertain and feel unequipped to talk about what antitrust is. And of course, there's a lot of ways in which policy structures the economy outside of antitrust. So we use anti-monopoly a lot. I agree this mono problem, and we sort of encounter that and try to say, hey, it doesn't, that's not actually what it means. It means like you have the, it's an entity that has the power to call the shots. Yeah. And then when you get into that, it's like, oh yeah, well, obviously Amazon has monopoly power. They call all these shots. People easily see that. They dictate what the public Publishers do, they dictate what sellers do, they dictate all kinds of things, what workers do. Um, And so that, I think, where it's monopoly feels like the people's term. And I do think we have to reclaim it in the sense of dislodging some of this stuff that has gotten attached to it kind of wrongly. And it, it actually, in some ways, I think, goes to some of what you do in the book about this idea that that somehow like consumer choice is the solution to our problems. Because when you get in that, like, oh, well, if there's any option, any, like I could stop using Facebook or there is literally one other option in the market, even though maybe it's tiny and incomplete, then it can't be a monopoly because like somehow people could just choose that other thing or choose to not use Facebook. And this doesn't have anything to do with our experience as people operating in the world. And yet we've internalized this idea about making that choice as consumers. I know, no, it's totally right. And I, I mean, I obviously I write the book during with an anti-monopoly frame. I do think that there's often a cluster of language that we can use all together. And that trust, it's not just antitrust, it's that these trusts are, are terrible, <laughs> but that we can... Like recovering language is really important and our, our tongues have been cut out by 40 years of people saying uh, 
when you're talking about too much power, you're not talking about anti-monopoly, you're not talking about antitrust, go elsewhere. And I've had multiple conversations, as you probably have, including during the Dodd-Frank fight in the late, uh, to early 2000s, 2009, 2010, where I said, we got to break up big banks. And people would say, that's not antitrust or that's not anti-monopoly. That had been, and I said, well, then how do we do it? And they said, well, there isn't a language for what you want to do. <laughs> it's like, it's a very... <laughs> Or one of my least favorite is people say, well, if this is a democracy problem, deal with it in campaign finance reform. And it's like, no, no, I, I know campaign finance reform. We can't deal with it just through campaign finance reform. But your, your point was sort of great, wonderfully illustrated during the big tech hearing where we saw Tim Cook saying, oh, no, 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 we're not a monopoly. Developers can go develop for um, a PlayStation. <laughs> and, and you Developer howls of of ghoulish laughter, <laughs> saying, "Right, so I'm gonna, that's how I'm going to build my business." And it's this incredible. I, I, we overuse the term gaslighting, but it is a gaslighting of people's human experience of power. I do think it's helpful to point out that when Standard Oil was broken up, it only had 65% of the market. Just so people understand, even when you're going back to your your Teddy Roosevelt fantasy. We're never talking about one. It's always about who has ability to dictate terms. It's never it's never been about one. Because otherwise, then you would do what you know, Driscoll does or, or the beer duopoly does, is you allow these cute little exceptions to exist. So you can say, oh, no, there's DuckDuckGo. Right. <laughs> I'm not a monopoly. And, and again, thinking about it in political terms, this is a tr classic political strategy, is you allow for, maybe we overuse Russia as an example, but you allow for a opposition party to exist that will never be able to gain power. And, and so it is, it's something that everybody in politics understands as a way to defend against illegitimate power is to claim that you have a rival when in power terms you don't. Before we go to the next question, let's take a short break. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. If you're enjoying this conversation, we hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it helps us produce all the resources and research we make available on our website. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org donate to make a contribution. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org donate. Thank you so much. And now back to the show where we're talking to Zephyr Teachout about her new book, Break Em Up. It does feel like we're talking about power a lot more than we used to, which feels really good to me, at least among people who are engaged in like social change work. For a long time, we talked about behavior. Let's get companies to behave better. And the, and the issue is we need, we need good companies and not bad companies. And just always being sort of stuck in that framework for a lot of years. And I, and it's shocking. One of the the facts you have in the book is is that antitrust and monopoly issues were not in the Democratic Party platform from like 1988, I think, until 2016, something like that. I mean, 30 years basically, we just pretended like power and economic power wasn't an issue, even for the party that supposedly is concerned about the well-being of ordinary people to your point about like losing a vocabulary, but it feels like we are starting to kind of turn, turn the corner on that and dealing with like, the underlying thing. We, we are. 
and there's a lot of great signs of it. The local work is really powerful, whether it's the, I mentioned this before, but one of the reasons I care so much about the California Uber Lyft fight is because it is an example of a state legislature <laughs> being pressured bottom up to take action against excessive private power. Um, so it's a proof that uh, people feel so impotent in this area, but it's a proof that this can happen at the state level. Mm -hmm. um, at the local level, I think people feel naturally both really empowered and disempowered at the same time, empowered to do some of the great local work you're talking about, and then just overwhelmed with how do we actually at that whole core take on, you know, Monsanto being so big, you know, how do we at the local level? And at the federal level, the power is at its peak but the debate has been the most most limited. So it's starting to change. There was the great moments in the presidential campaign when you saw three candidates, arguably four, we can debate Cory Booker, but Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren taking on big tech and Amy Klobuchar really talking a lot about big ag in the Iowa discussions, but elsewhere as well. And, and Klobuchar, has actually also talked a lot about the impact on the news. So you suddenly saw three presidential candidates talking about taking on illegitimate private power and being asked about it. And then it faded. I mean, then that moved away from the center of the debate. But I got to challenge anybody who's listening. It still isn't happening as much as I'd like on the congressional level. And I think that's that's what's going to be the 2022 is there is a real moment to make it part of everyday politics. So it's not just what, there's a tendency to make it presidential or hyper-local. Mm -hmm. And to get, to build the movement, we need the connections between those two. So congressional level, real congressional level fights between people who have totally different visions of how to take on corporate power or who don't think it's a problem. And I'd say a majority of elected Democrats in Congress right now still don't think it's a problem. That's my bet. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to have to come bottom up. A lot of the new Congress members really do. Pramila Jayapal, who's a wonderful national leader on many issues, um, Ro Khanna, Keith Ellison in Minnesota. Um, these are, uh, I'm sure I'm leaving people out, but these are three leaders that I really watch because they have a national platform they're connecting anti-monopoly to other issues. And I think they're really been, been a critical part of building this national discussion. It really is changing. And I, I think some one of the more exciting areas of change also is in increased recognition of the deep connections between race and concentrated power. Well, I, I, so I was actually just going to ask if you could talk a little bit more about the connections between monopoly power and racial oppression, low wages, poor working conditions, because that's what I feel like we haven't quite gotten to in the political arena yet. But those connections are all there. Yeah, so I, I'm going to come at this, I come at race and monopoly power first from my perspective as a prior student of democracy and gerrymandering and redistricting. <laughs> so one of the oldest tools for wiping out black power in the South was merging political districts. So if you had three political districts, in one political district, a majority black electorate, and two others about 
60% white electorate. Old tool of the Old South is merge them and then elect district-wide uh, representative, either at the state or congressional level. And that representative is going to be white because the merger has wiped out the local black power. So then you apply that merger doctrine to, uh, honestly, I didn't actually write about this in the book, but I was looking at similar things that happened with black colleges and universities, how merger wiped out centers of black academic power. But when you look at mergers in the context of just businesses, that merging it has a, ble a major bleaching effect. If you merge together, as we have allowed happen in this country, so many of the funeral homes around the country, you end up with a big white-owned, white-financed um, SCI instead of an important locus of black political power, which has been the funeral home industry. And when you look at small businesses versus Fortune 500, small businesses are far more likely to be run by a person of color. The Fortune 500, I think it's like 4% are run by a person of color. And then when you look at the at actually who's controlling capital, it's even it's under 2%. It's just it's I mean, it's really incredibly bleached. So there's a huge, huge, I think, blind spot in that we think about merger policy as racially neutral. In the same way that, that we thought about and talked about the CARES Act as racially neutral, when by putting a bazooka, as David Dayan liked to call it, trillions of dollars to the wealthiest institutions in the country and peanuts for small businesses, that's not a racially neutral choice. That was a choice to support already powerful locuses of white power and really starve and destroy small business locuses of power, of economic power controlled by people of color. So I just think that we have to stop looking at merger policy and antitrust policy in racially neutral terms. And allowing these mergers has been a major driver of inequality, but also of racial inequality. And so when we want to turn that around, we want to turn the machine around and have it face the opposite direction and instead provide capital to local communities through community banks. That also is not a racially neutral choice. That's a choice to support communities of color. But you asked something else that was sort of along these lines. I see that changing right now. I think people have a growing understanding of the interaction between race and anti-monopoly. And I mean, we just like to be clear, a lot of the great anti-monopolists of the early 20th century were terrible segregationists. So there's a there's a reason it's like you don't want to hold up Woodrow Wilson. Right. Um, so. How do you like how do you wrestle with that? I mean, I, I've thought about it and I guess I've sort of is it that there is some kind of philosophical link between small-scale anti-monopoly politics and segregationism? You know, because there's a lot of, of that, a lot, you know, Wilson is a good example, but there are others from that period. Or is it just merely a coincidence? And are the forces of sort of pro-monopoly, if you will, of that era just as race, you know, is it that this, there's so much racism that, how do you think about that? Well, your second point is really important, is that it's not like the pro-monopolists should be held up as, as great heroes either. I guess I think about it in different ways. One is that it's just always important to tell the truth. So you tell the truth about who Wilson was. You tell the truth about the impact of merger policy. And then I also think it's important to point to 
other moments in history where there's been two things, a deep connection between civil rights and abolitionism, both, and anti-monopoly, to show that some other people have seen that connection, like this really powerful movement in the mid-late 19th century that very much saw white power and il as illegitimate power and corporate power as illegitimate. And the railroads were engines of both, you know, the way that railroads were engines of segregation and engines of pressing others. That's one moment. Obviously, Du Bois is a really important anti-monopolist, and I uh, talk about Du Bois and his own sort of understanding of the bargain between white northern power and entrepreneurial racist politicians and business owners in the South who basically make a bargain to come together to extract value and suppress black political and economic power. <laughs> And I'm always on the lookout for these bargains. And we have modern versions of those bargains. I'm also interested, I'm jumping around a little bit, in Phil Hart, who is a really interesting character to me. Phil Hart was one of the authors of the civil rights legislation and is best known for his leadership in civil rights in this country. His two passions were civil rights and anti-monopoly. And he actually went to his deathbed writing about what we should do next in, in anti-monopoly laws because he understood that both segregation and concentrated corporate power were the two big challenges we had to a self-governing society. And so that way of thinking, I think, is important. I want to have a whole conference on this question about the relationship between race and, and corporate power in history is to me the big question mark is Reagan and the Reagan wrecking crews approach. So Reagan's wrecking crew, Baxter, Meese, this California group of sort of white authoritarians <laughs> come in. And if you look at their own language, they put antitrust at the top of their agenda. They say like changing the way that we approach antitrust. For us today, that's, that's kind of weird. Like it's interesting and weird. Now they succeeded and it's been awful <laughs> and boredom is a big part of that. But it's like, okay, so why was Reagan's wrecking crew not just deregulatory, but why did they care so much about antitrust? And why was it so tied to their effort to undo the successes of the civil rights movement? Mm. Which it clearly was. So you have on the one side people who are fighting for civil rights and for stronger anti-monopoly laws, and the other side, Meese, Baxter, these Californians coming with Reagan, who have a kind of, this, these are question marks to me. It seems like they have an authoritarian streak. Like we want centralized power. That's one way to understand it is they just wanted centralized power. And these are two ways to get it. Another way to understand it is it was a bargain. So it's like, okay, we're, we, we're gonna go, you know, Reagan was not that subtle about his vision of returning to a white America. The winks and nods are right there. This, the dog whistle, as you might call it, is right there. So is he going to sell that return to corporate America or is the corporate America thought, oh, the way that we get back in is by banning racial anxiety? Those are questions for me, but from the 40s onward, those two have come in together, sort of this authoritarian, uh, corporate authoritarianism and white nostalgia have come together. I mean, how do you, what do you, how do you see the connection? 
No, I think that that's, I think that that's right. I, I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason that there is in the early 20th century, a certain anti-monopoly activity in the South is, is that it's also in the West that it really has to do with something with being outside the center of financial power. And you, I think you're absolutely right about this observation of Wall Street and moneyed interests in the North and like the deal that they cut with white supremacists in the South about keeping the South's economy structured in a way that excluded African-Americans and that also excluded a certain kind of economic development because that meant more opportunity for people to sort of insist on this ongoing kind of agrarian sharecropping model essentially and that that there's a there's the the northern financial power has a complete hand in in bringing that about and then yeah you see these really interesting movements i mean the you know sort of that populist movement in the 19th century that brought together white and black farmers to call for a reorganization of power is like one of the most, you know, instructive and interesting periods of our history. And this relationship between in the civil rights movement, again, is kind of another moment where black owned businesses in the South were instrumental in being able to kind of be pillars of allowing for making part of that movement happen and being able to support it in a way because they were businesses and had some level of independence and how much we, I think we sort of remember the civil rights movement kind of collectively around things like voting rights and, and, and segregation in public spaces, but there was a huge part of it that was economic. And I think part of yes. the 40 years that we've had recently, this kind of blind, we've like swept that away as though that didn't exist. I think you're right about like telling the truth and recovering the history is such an, an, an essential part of like figuring out how we got here and how much racial oppression economically and monopoly power are like intertwined. And that if we want to unravel one, we've got to unravel the other and we can't succeed if we're only pulling on one of those threads. Yeah. And I start the book with stories that I just, I think that we have to then find new stories that show how people who are subject to this regime are connected, <laughs> who are living in like what seem to be very different worlds. So I start the book telling stories of chicken farmers and trying to connect that to what's happening to Uber drivers, connect that what's to what's happening to restaurant owners, what's happening to people who run a laundromats. <laughs> all of whom are being told that they are totally different and should hate each other, but are in, in really living under very similar, really humiliating economic circumstances. So finding this is returning to the possibility of the, the black and white farmers working together and finding new alliances, both alliances between urban and rural people who are both subject to monopolized regimes finding alliances between small business owners and franchisees who are, of course, small business owners and people who work for Amazon. That is quite, and I know this is the work that you guys are doing, it is the most difficult work. And also, I think it's essential. Like, I think that finding those alliances, there's no academic way around it, <laughs> that actually creating political power with those alliances is the necessary step to taking on this kind of concentrated power. 
think that's totally right. So my, my question is, you talked about like the next sort of arena in campaigns and in politics being around congressional fights and how do we make monopoly part of, of congressional races? Are there sort of three issues or three, you know, like what are the things that could help drive that? Okay, I said that, but I, I got to tell you, the last three weeks I've been on a state kick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to, I should, I should say that I was, and the state kick is, I've been so excited by, and so this is where, call your, call your governor <laughs> and your state, uh, state lawmakers. I've been so excited by the effort to cap delivery fees during the pandemic, like delivery fees are killing restaurants that are already being killed by the pandemic. And people kind of get it. They get that Grubhub should not be taking a huge percentage and we should be supporting restaurants. So my excitement is once states realize they can do that, <laughs> cap delivery right. fees, well, guess what? You can actually have caps on what Amazon can do in your state. <laughs> and you can actually shape what you know, Monsanto or Mayor can do in your state. And there, obviously that's a little complicated. There's some federalism issues that we have to get over, but people, I, I feel like this delivery fee fight is revealing a state power that people just, every time I talk to people about states, they'd feel like it just sounds impossible. It just sounds impossible. But I, I, I mean, I'd be interested to see what you think. I think this doesn't sound impossible to people. <laughs> No, it sounds eminently doable. And, and you know, a bunch of cities have already done it. And yeah. at least one state has done it, New Jersey. Yeah. And we've joined with the Economic Liberties Project and a whole bunch of restaurant groups and others to do this Protect Our Restaurants. I think it's protectourrestaurants.org. So it. it's both like a petition to the FTC, but also like a how-to guide to get your city or your state legislature to do this. And I think you're right. It is like a kind of gateway, you know, <laughs> a kind of gateway drug to like, hey, wait, we're, we're in charge. We could actually set some rules around these monopolies and we could do it right in our city. And that's or at our state level. Tying contracts or predatory pricing. It's I just feel like, yeah, that's a big issue, but it feels too big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Delivery feels isn't fees isn't too big. And so then if you just get to the broader demand of like, why are you allowing these monsters to control us? It's the lawmaker's job to figure out how. Just keep making that demand. And, <laughs> and, and if the monsters are still controlling us, make it louder. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love the restaurants campaign. That's why I've been on this. Like, I just love what you guys are doing there. So thank you. And this as we started as my fan mail for ILSR. <laughs> we'll take it. Thank you. Uh, so my, I do want people to read this book because I care so much about these issues. And it's both to you who are listening, but also to your aunt or niece who maybe ideally has not been listening. Here is a book that hopefully will depress them for 30 minutes and then excitement them for a few hours. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I will give one last plug for the book, which is really terrific, which is like, not only is it very readable and conversational and like interesting, like I was just like, I was engaged throughout and sort of like knits together these things that you kind of in your mind know go together, but hadn't really thought about it that way. But I, I think the whole last third is dedicated to what do we do about it and like all of the possibility about how you both build the movement and the politics and the language and the tools. And that's what I think is really nice 
Like this isn't just a book about a problem. It's a book about actually where do we go with it? Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for talking with us. As they used to say 150 years ago, down with monopolies. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to Zephyr's book and everything else we discussed today by visiting ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. You can also help us out with a gift that helps support our work, including the production of this very podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Del Fiaco, and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Del Fiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.